Okay, let's go ahead and begin. Romans 2. So last week we ended in a discussion that Paul uh, presents about the state of the Jew, uh, beginning in verses 17 through 29. And we had moved our way through to a discussion of Paul laying out the fact or the importance that the Jews needed to have a heart that was circumcised, that that was what was important to God, not necessarily the body being circumcised. So what I want to do is sort of integrate a review of the things that we've talked about in chapters 1, 2, and up to this point, in, and going into 3, because when we get into chapter 3, around verse 20 to 21, we really conclude Paul's argument uh, that all men are under sin. And then he moves into this discussion of the righteousness of God and how, how God has solved the problem of man's sins. So before I get into that, I really do want to sort of pull the pieces together because, you know, I I sit and think and think about, okay, how can I improve what I've done over the last four weeks? Try to pull the pieces together. And so that's really what my attempt to do is now is to pull the pieces together of the topics and the things that we've talked about and the applications that we've made in chapters one and two to really think about us today uh, in 2022. So, I always think about, let's begin with the end in mind. Because if you know where I'm going, where my brain is going, and sometimes that's challenging, just ask my better half, I think you may be able to understand where my brain is going and how I'm connecting the dots. So, with the end in mind, I want you to go to Romans 11 chapter. And I know I'm not scheduled to cover Romans 11 and 12. Don't quite know exactly who is. But I do want to make a point in Romans 11 and Romans 12 as we look at a review. So, beginning in verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Beginning in chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is, your, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what's Paul doing? Paul is proclaiming the excellencies of God. Because really, when you get from chapter 11 to chapter 12, he breaks from the doctrinal aspect and moves into the behavioral aspect of the Christian. And so that's really where I'm wanting you to realize and focus on that the things that we have talked about in chapters 1 and 2 about the Gentile and the Jew and the applications that I've attempted to make 
in looking at chapters 1 and 2 or with this end in mind because we cannot just go through the rituals because then that heart is not transformed. Because notice what uh, verse 2 is, is saying, that be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the heart. And this idea of renewing is a renovation, a complete change for the better, which will then allow us to metamorphosis is the, way, the word we get. I'm, that's not the Greek word. But notice it is change into another form. So we become not like the world, but we become like what God wants us to be, like his child. And so that's why when you think about that's been the aim that I've really tried to focus on is the gospel is the mechanism by which we transform our lives to be the way that God wants us to be. And again, as a way of review, when you think about chapters 1 and 2, what do the Gentiles and the Jews not have? What's the solution to their problem? Well, let's back up. What's the problem? Sin. What's the solution? The gospel. And so that is really what I've been attempting to do in chapters 1 and 2 is stress the value, the importance of the gospel in changing men's lives. But when you go to chapter 2, verse 17, and you look at the Jew, where had they put their confidence in? In the law or something else? Themselves. Notice they had put their confidence in their name, I'm a Jew. I am God's special people. Number two, they had put their confidence in their works. Notice what he says, uh, that uh, you are confident that you yourselves, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. And they had put their confidence in their worship. We are God's people, and we are worshiping him the way we want, that he wants us to worship him. But what does Matthew 15 say? What does Jesus say they had done? They had put their will in front of God's. They were not worshiping him the way he had wanted them to worship him. They were not doing the things that he wanted them to do. And just because they were a Jew doesn't mean anything. That's the whole purpose of the the discussion of the circumcision of the body. They thought, we're circumcised. We're the Jews. But they were just like the Gentiles because they weren't keeping the law. Does that make sense? Now, I'm going to go and, and sort of talk a little bit about the fact that specifically over the past summer and even before, Sylvia and I have had opportunity to talk to people who have fallen away from the faith. What's interesting is we've held these discussions separately, not as a group. We haven't brought all these people that we know together in one room. But it's strikingly similar the reasons why they have fallen away. 
okay? Because our effort in talking to them, obviously to bring them back, but we needed to understand the journey they were on. Because if you don't understand the journey and why they went from point A to point B or point C, can you change? Can you do anything? You've got to understand the why in order to affect change. So I'm going to read you excerpts from an email that I received giving an, probably the best explanation or from a summary perspective that summarizes why the people we've talked with to understand are no longer walking in the way. And I'm going to, um, let, me, let me say it this way. There is a connection back to Romans 2. So just bear with me. Give me the grace to go through, through this. So listen very closely. I have chosen not to put this on the PowerPoint. So you need to listen to what I'm saying. Point one. The Church of Christ's view of authority is logically untenable and can can cause harm to the cause of Christ. Second point, God's followers were given a law in the Old Testament. That law was nailed to the cross with Jesus. The New Testament is not laid out anything like the Old Testament. However, I was for all intents and purposes taught growing up that we have been given a new law that is basically the same as the old law, but with some slightly different rules. Let that sink in for just a minute. Okay? So let's, let's address, what's he saying first off? What's this person saying? Point one. The term Church of Christ's view of authority. Does that strike a chord? Basically, the term just conveys what? The church is just another denomination. Right? With its own rules and regulations. Its own creed. Understand? Second, the, old te- the New Testament is basically the same as the Old Testament law, but with some slightly different rules. So what's he saying there? The checklist, the proverbial checklist that we have, that we mark off, and as long as we're marking these checkboxes off, we're good to go. And that's all that matters. But what about the heart? Sam. I was going to say, it sounds like a lot of people that I've heard and a lot of places that I've known about or visited, that they didn't do a good job. Sorry. We need to have these planted. (laughs) They didn't do a good job wherever it was, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, they didn't do a good job teaching the difference between the Old and New Testament, but the comparisons and contrast, because we are under law, 
So maybe that wasn't explained very well. Uh, but also, uh, it sounds like they didn't have a very good understanding of what authority is either. And there are a lot of people that teach this grace ahead of everything else. Yeah. Up a lot of folks. Yeah, so I'm going to make several comments. One, speaking of authority, because that's in the bullet. That's not really where I was going, but yes, to your point. And I would just strongly ask the elders, we need lessons on authority. Desperately. A series of lessons. But second, I don't want it to be about them. I want it to be about us. Because that's the whole purpose of us studying the scripture is how can we apply what's being taught to our lives today? Just a minute, Leanne. To our lives today and to the way we perceive the gospel. So I'm going to go through a series of things because I pointed out three things that the Jews faltered on. Confidence in name. Do we sometimes think, oh, we're Church Christ, quote unquote. We're good. We got it. But do we got it? To use that vernacular. Hmm. Let me just say this. I don't have all the answers to the questions I'm going to be asking. None of us do. And that's why Peter and Paul and the Spirit continue to tell us, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we never have all the answers. And if we think we got it all, we need to have a reexamination of where we are from a faith perspective. So, we don't need to have confidence in the name that is on the sign outside. But second, confidence in works. Going back to the checklist mentality. I teach a Bible class. I visit the sick. I, you know, prepare meals. I do this and I do that. No. Again, our salvation is not based on works. We'll get to that more in Romans, the third chapter. But it is not. And we even get to the point in, in later in today's lesson that our salvation is a gift from God. Okay? Third, confidence and worship. Oh, we're doing the five acts of worship. We're good. Boop, 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 check, 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 check. I come three times a week. I'm good. And we are worshiping God in the prescribed manner. Do you understand what I'm saying? We open with the announcements, opening prayer, four songs, three songs, whatever. We do the Lord's Supper. We, do the, we have a scripture reading. We have the, the sermon, closing song, closing prayer. We're, we're good. We're out. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not. The elders have made decisions on how to have our assembly done in a, a, an orderly fashion. So don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But the elders chose that in our, it was best for the flock, for whatever reason, 
to just meet one time on Sunday. Would that upset some of us from a scriptural perspective? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying it may, mm, just a change in habit, change in behavior. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that. But from a scriptural perspective. But for many churches that are going to the one service, for whatever reason, comments, oh, they're going liberal. I'm not joking. If we wanted to do Lord's Supper, sermon, or worship, whatever you want to call it, and that would be the morning, Bible class in the evening on Sunday. That's what, how my, where my sister goes. That's how they do it. Would that upset some of us? If we put a box out on the wall for the contribution to go in, I think Exton, outside Pennsylvania, outside Philly, did it at one time they did it that way. Members, when they came in, they knew instantly, or when they walked in, that we needed to put our contribution. That was it. Nobody said anything. Would that upset people? From a scriptural perspective. You see where I'm going? We get into these habits that we perceive as the only way to do it. But what is the importance of worship? Is it the ritual? Why do we come together and worship? God. It's God-focused. It's from the heart. We're worshiping him. We're edifying each other. We're remembering the Lord's death if it's on the first day of the week. And so what I'm saying is, before we point the finger at the Jews for their ritualistic look at religion and their faith and service to God, we need to be looking at ourselves to make sure we're not going down the same path as the Jew did because what is to be circumcised? It's the heart. And that's nothing new because if you go to Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter, and I referenced this last week, In verse 16, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. The Jews should have known that. But what else should the Jews have known? Go back to verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That seems to be familiar in the New Testament, in the Gospels. What is that? It's the first, it's the utmost command because everything revolves around this command. If that command isn't met, nothing else matters. And so that's really where I'm trying to get to when we think about, in Romans, uh, the 10th chapter, excuse me, Romans 2, and the, Paul's discussion to the Jews about the importance of circumcision, but the circumcision of the heart. 
And we cannot escape the fact that this is just applicable to us as it was to the Jew. And the things that Paul wrote to the Gentiles are not just applicable to the Gentiles in the first century. They are applicable to us. And we need to... I know I said this back in lesson number two. We have got to teach the heart. And I'll share one other event with you that really made an impression on Sylvia and me as we were young. I I think this was even pre-kids. We went to a a series of teacher training classes at the church where we used to go to. It It was held after we had moved away from Houston, came back up here. We went back to Houston for this event. And Glenda Shells, who wrote many of the songs that we sing, For You Have Promised, and among many of them, is one among many of them. One thing she stressed to the ladies in her class, and Sylvia was in that class, was you have got to teach the heart of the child. Don't teach them just the facts and the figures, because that's what this person that I quoted from the email, that's what had happened. I guarantee you this person knows the Bible inside and out. But what, had been, what was failed to do? The focus was on something else. It was on the rules, not the heart. And again, Sam, to your point, I'm not saying we dismiss the rules. That goes back to, <clears throat> that goes back to Matthew, the 23rd chapter, when Jesus, um, you know, basically just condemns, strongly condemns the, the Pharisees. What does he say in Matthew 23, if I can get there? You know, when, they, when he talks about you tithe mint and cumin, uh, for, you, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected, neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So I'm not saying we forget the law, the the rules, if you will. But the love, the mercy, and the grace are as important, if not more, because they drive. Going back to Romans 12, if we have affected the heart, if we have renewed the heart, what will that then do for us? We will transform ourselves to be the children of God that God wants us to be. Leanne, you've been very patient as I've gone through my... Um, I just wanted to say, um, you know, I've been having Bible studies and other things so I can strengthen my own faith and stuff like that. And like I tell people that have fallen away from the church and stuff like that, you can't come back to the church because of people. You can't come back to the church because you um, you um, you don't believe uh, God anymore. You have to make your faith your own. You have to lo- you have to you have to make sure you're doing what you can as an individual to serve God as much as you can from your heart, mind, and your body and your spirit. Because a lot of people, they leave the church because of people or other things, and they don't understand it's not about that. It's about the core, the doctrine of, of the faith is, is, about, is about obeying what's in the scriptures. Yeah, and so I'm going to touch on something you said. It's about the individual. So if we as individuals 
are exercising and fulfilling the Romans 12, where we are changing our heart and renewing our minds and living that changed life, what's that going to do collectively? Because the collective is really the result of the individual, is it not? So, having said that, then chapter 3 moves into some objections. Because Paul anticipates, if I can get there, he anticipates three objections. You know, it's almost like, again, think about it, and I brought this up in the past. He's approaching this almost from a legal perspective. He's presented these evidences, and now he's anticipating objection, you know, from the, from the Jew. And so he says, well, what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the benefit of circumcision? Okay, so that's an objection. That's really a logical objection. What does he say? His response in verse 2, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Why don't you flip over to Ezekiel, the 16th chapter. And you're thinking, Ezekiel? What? You've gone mad. And probably so. But Exodus 16 is really, uh, it is a description of the Jews before God selected the Jews. And it really is a picture of God's mercy. You know, Abraham, the Hebrew people were like any other people. But but Abraham was faithful, and God chose him and his descendants then to uh, bring through the law. I'm sorry, Chris. Is it Exodus or Ezekiel? No, Ezekiel. Ezekiel, sorry. Did I say Exodus? Just for a second, you might have been referring to that. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, Ezekiel 16. Because really what this section of Ezekiel is about is God's mercy on Israel. And so he's describing uh, the birth and the ugliness of that nation, of those people. But God took them, took him, took that, that people and showed uh, love and compassion and became a beautiful um, people with God's help. And so they were entrusted, they were selected by God as part of God's plan of salvation to bring about the Christ. So the Jews had a, a, a special place. They were God's special people. But whoa, second objection. Well, well, if that's the case, then doesn't the unfaithfulness of some of the Jews nullify the faithfulness of God? And the way I take the way I understand it is, well, if some Jews disobeyed, well, and if God still brought about his promises, does that show that God is not righteous? Do you see where the argument is going? The Jews failed to understand the, the nature of those promises. Yes, the promise, the land promise, 
the nation promise was was dependent upon what? Their obedience, their faithfulness. But what about the seed promise? It was not. Okay? God would bring about his seed at the appropriate time through this chosen nation. So no, the, the response here from Paul is no, that does not nullify the uh, righteousness of God. Well then, the third question, well, if the Jews' unrighteousness shows God's faithfulness to his promises, then is God unjust by punishing the unrighteous? Uh, no, because God has to punish the unrighteous in order to do be what? Just. And Paul goes and says, you know, if that's the case, then why are you calling me a sinner for preaching the gospel? So he answers these objections that he anticipates his audience or his reader to, to have based upon what he's now described in chapter 2 for the Jew. But when all is said and done in, in verse 9... Then we come to his closing argument, and that is that all men are under sin. And so, <coughs> uh, going to my question for, our, for today, before I go too far, in today's lesson, one thing I want you to walk away with is the fact that um, that through the gospel, that all men are sinful, all men are guilty, but they are justified by a law of faith in Christ, not by a law of works. Okay? So, let's move in to this and go to verse 9. And that's really question 1. What has Paul shown regarding both Jew and Gentile? Let's... Everybody's guilty. Everybody's sin, uh, a sinner. And when you look at verses 10, and 11, and 12, that's really a statement from Psalms uh, 14. 14 verses 1 through 3. It's also in Psalm 53. And so the Jews should have known that there was no one righteous. No, not one. And the, the balance of these uh, quotes from various Old Testament uh, psalms are, are really a description of the ungodly. But then he concludes in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's from Psalm 36. So what does that say? What's he saying? How is he describing men, the sinner, the ungodly? They don't respect the creator. There's no fear. There's no honor. So you see how everything falls back to this concept of honor and loving God. So then going to question two, and this takes us into verse 19. I'm moving a little bit quick to move through, try to get as far as as possible. But comment, question, please. Uh, are welcome. So, was any Jew 
justified by works of the law? No. He makes that very clear. Now we know, we know, they should know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be held accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. What was the purpose of the law? To bring about a knowledge of sin. We'll talk more about that in chapter 7. But notice he introduces this concept or, or affirms this thought that the law brings about a sin, uh, the knowledge of the sin. It did not justify man. There was no mechanism within the law, the old law, that justifies man. Okay. So, is there a slight difference between the old law and the new law? Absolutely there is. And it's the, the mechanism, the, 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 pro, the way that we can be justified. And that's exactly where he now goes into, in verses 21 and following, is showing how God solves this problem that man has. He's a sinner. And how can I then be just? This is God, not, not Carrie. How can I be just and the justifier at the same time? Well, God had already worked out this plan of salvation when? Before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1. And so notice here in verse 21, but, and when you see a but, you see a therefore, you've got to make some connections. So he's contrasting this thought in verse 20 with the solution. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So, that's question three. Apart from the law, how was righteousness manifested? Yes. Now, I want to, I want to, what involvement did the law have, uh, the law and the prophets have in God's righteousness? They testified. They were witnesses. Now think about the law. How many witnesses did it take to affirm a fact? Two or three. How many witnesses do we have? Well, specifically here that's mentioned. Two, right? The law and the prophets. They all spoke about Christ. They all spoke about a coming covenant that would be different than the existing one. A covenant that would be of the heart. That's Jeremiah 31. And so notice, I'm going to, um, that here in this section, then, we have God's plan of salvation. Uh, the way that man uh, can be saved is, or that God saves men through faith in Christ Jesus. So I want to make a couple of observations before we go too far in. Observation number one, who is this justification open or available to? All men. It's open to all, right? All men have sinned. So if it's not open to everyone, then what does that make God? 
a respecter of persons. And it also makes him what? Unrighteous, unjust, because he's already, Paul has already shown that everyone is a sinner. And so if the mechanism to be saved is not open to everyone, you've just damaged what God is all about. Does that make sense? So, the mechanism is open to everyone. But I want you to notice verse 24. Being justified as a gift. We've already mentioned that. It is a gift. So, Paul is beginning this introduction, this concept that salvation is a gift. We'll talk more about this in in, uh, Romans 4 and again in Romans 6. But it is a gift. But what's the mechanism through whom... We receive this justification. It is in Christ. Okay? So, is there universal salvation? It's available. Thank you, Jonathan. It's available. So, in that way, it's universal. But it is dependent upon what? Faith in whom? Jesus Christ. Okay? So, and I mentioned this when I taught the latter half of John, what, two years ago maybe, I guess? I'm trying to think. I think Phil taught the first half and I did the second half. But I mentioned this back when we look at Romans, uh, John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What does that say about Christianity? True Christianity. There's one. It's exclusive. So this concept of we just... We all serve the same God. We all going to get there if there is a there. True or false? It's false. Christianity is a religion of exclusivity. And in a world of DE and I, we got to understand that Christianity is an exclusive faith. And it's that faith in Christ that man is justified. And so again, I just stress, it is an exclusive religion. So now, question four. What did God do with Christ and why? He was the sacrifice. He was the truth. Okay, so... Notice what, how, how he's pictured. God displayed publicly. So was the sacrifice of Christ done in a closet? Was it hidden? It was a well-known event. Okay? So number one, it was well-known. And he's the propitiation in his blood through faith. Well, that sounds like a big word. 
So what's propitiation? What does that, what does that evoke? Think about the old covenant. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. What did the high priest do one time a year on the day of atonement? Sprinkled blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the people's sins, for his, the high priest's sins, for the sins of the nation. And so that blood sprinkled was to make atonement, was to appease God. So when you take that concept and then bring it over to Christ, what did the blood of Christ do? It appeased God. And you can do the image, that blood being sprinkled on a physical mercy seat, the heavenly mercy seat. God. Yes. And so now you see, think, think Hebrews, right? Superior sacrifice, superior covenant, superior priesthood. Christ is superior to Moses and the angels. So is our new covenant like the old? It is superior. Isn't that the whole point of Hebrews? So, okay. So again, the one who has faith in Christ is the one that then will, uh, will be shown as righteous. And notice what he says. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, speaking of God, that he might be just and the justifier in the, of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, do we have anything to boast about? No, it is not on any account that we've done. So going back to the little checks that we talked about at the very beginning, that doesn't help. That doesn't save us. And so notice again, it's not of works. It is by law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It is the one who has, who, is faith, who has faith in Christ. So how are all men, going to question five, how are all men justified? By faith. By faith. Faith in Christ. And so notice what produces that faith. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Romans 10. 1017, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What is the gospel all about? Power to produce faith. faith. That's Romans 116. And who is the object of the gospel? Christ. So what should we be preaching? We should be preaching Christ. We should be preaching and evangelizing the gospel, not Church of Christ doctrine. Preach Christ, because Christ is the means of salvation. That's what we should be preaching. And so notice then he concludes in verse 21, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So what did the, what did the sacrifice of Christ do? 
It fulfilled the law. Isn't that Galatians, the third chapter? So, you know, when you look at Galatians 3, I'm about to run out of time, but real quickly, Galatians 3, 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And then notice also in verse 24, I'm going to go to verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. So going here, just and the justifier, our salvation is a gift by God's grace. And I don't think we see it that way many times, but it is a gift by his grace. Christ is our propitiation. He's the means by our salvation. And to be just, for God to be just and the justifier, we need to have faith in, in Christ because it's exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's the point here in Romans. Paul is making sure his reader understands we are saved by faith, not by the law of works. And there are people out there. Thank you for your attention. We will pick up in chapter four and guess what? We are on schedule.